Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Now, those who have been voting on which pharmacist-driven articles to focus on for the Literature Review series, uh, thank you. If not, uh, Twitter or Instagram and follow me, Pharmacy to Dose, and go vote. Uh, let your voice be heard on which pharmacist-featured articles you want in the front of the fridge section of the Literature Review series. As the first uh, month of trying this is April, um, and so very, very excited. Another big reminder, the first annual Pharmacy to Dose Awards will start accepting nominations on Thursday, June 1st. So get thinking. I hope you've been doing that. What are some of the award categories you ask? All right, Mentor of the Year. The People's Choice Award, a.k.a. Podcast Guest of the Year, Pharmacy Living Legend Award, and Conference Speaker of the Year. In total, there's going to be 10 awards, and there'll be a Google form you fill out for nominations. Uh, The link will be everywhere. It'll be on the website, PharmacyToDose.com, as well as social media, at PharmacyToDose. Um, And you, the listeners, will ultimately be voting. I don't want there to be uh, any confusion. This isn't anything that I'm necessarily going to choose. You all are going to pick um, and vote, and it's going to be what the people want to do. Um, So get excited. I'm very excited. I think this is going to be a whole lot of fun. Now, uh, today's episode is absolutely fantastic. So this is part one in a two-part series uh, focused on perioperative emergencies. Uh, and highlighting uh, four pharmacists that are um, extremely well-known, well-published, um, and very knowledgeable in this space. Uh, and that would be Sarah Highland, Eric Johnson, Garang Patel, and Rachel Wolf. Uh, and the, the idea of this episode came from a JACCP article that's entitled Perioperative Medical Emergencies, the role of clinical pharmacists, and a review of pharmacotherapy considerations. So as we're diving into this, you know, download this paper, read it, have it next to you as we're going through because it gets referenced and it really is just an awesome paper. And I was uh, really happy that I was able to highlight and then, of course, talk to, to these four a little more in depth. Now, 
thinking of both the episodes. So each episode will feature a discussion with all four panelists, and then we'll review a disease state and then finally a medication within the perioperative space. So those kind of clinical discussions, there's just going to be two out of the four. Um, And so in part one, uh, we discuss their experience starting in the perioperative space as well as general roles or responsibilities. Uh, then we review the management of cardiac arrest in the OR as well as the use of Sugamidex and some considerations. Uh, so stay tuned next week for part two. Uh, we talk about last dantrolene and a roundtable discussion uh, with advice and a look into the future of perioperative clinical pharmacy. Uh, so Today's episode is great. Part one, perioperative emergencies. Let's go. Today's episode is just fantastic. Uh, Lucky to be joined by four pharmacy leaders uh, in the perioperative space to dive into perioperative emergencies. Uh, So this is kind of a round table-esque format. Uh, There'll be a few questions answered by all, but the majority will be answered by one to two members of the panel, just simply for time purposes. Uh, Now, gave their names in the beginning, but a little more on who is on this panel, you might ask. So I'll give a brief intro as to who the guests are, but they'll give a little more detail about their background in the beginning. Uh, Now, Sarah Highland is a perioperative and emergency medicine clinical pharmacist at Ohio Health Grant Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio. Now, Eric Johnson is the perioperative critical care pharmacist at UK Healthcare in Lexington, Kentucky. Garang Patel is the director of clinical pharmacy services at the University of Chicago Medicine in Sweet Home, Chicago, Illinois. And if you are wondering, yes, I added that Blues Brothers line. Uh, And Rachel Wolf is the perioperative clinical pharmacy specialist supervisor at Barnes Jewish Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri. So thank you all so much for taking time out of your busy day uh, to join me and us to help give insight into a world that I think many are familiar with speaking about the OR and the perioperative space, but few are as well-versed or as experienced. So I'm excited to, to learn and gain knowledge with all of your insights. What is your story kind of about how each of you got into the perioperative space as a pharmacist? I'm guessing there's a little bit of variety or differences between all of you. So if possible, maybe go a little bit into detail, kind of your practice site, responsibilities, or, you know, for those who may not be as clinical, what were some of your clinical roles? Um, We'll kind of uh, go around the Zoom here, uh, here from all four of the guests, and let's uh, switch it up here. We'll go reverse alphabetical by first name. So Sarah, you're kind of going to be up first. Great. Thank you, Nick. Really appreciate the invitation. Great to be here with my colleagues around the, uh, the virtual table here. My story with getting started with perioperative clinical pharmacy uh, was a total accident. I literally tripped and fell into it pretty much. Um, I came into pharmacy to work in an emergency department, and I still work in the emergency department about 25% of my time. Um, but that was really my, my original whole career trajectory. Um, both my parents were, were ER nurses when I was growing up, but I just always knew that was the environment that I, I wanted to work in someday. And pharmacy was just my means to that end. Um, but during my PGY1 pharmacy practice residency here at Grant Medical Center in Columbus, we're a big level one trauma center. In addition to doing a lot of you know critical care, emergency medicine things, I decided to do a rotation with anesthesia because I just thought that was interesting sounding. That's awesome. Uh, we didn't really have... Yeah, we didn't really have like a pharmacist uh, really 
serving in any clinical type of capacity in our perioperative space. You know, we kind of had a satellite that kind of had operational roles, of course, but uh, not not like any clinical uh, type of service dedicated at that time. And so I was really precepted by an anesthesiologist who was willing to kind of take me on and I uh, got to spend a lot of time at the bedside in the OR with the anesthesia teams, also observe a lot of surgeries, make some connections with the surgeons, with the nursing staff. And even though it was a one-month rotation during my pharmacy residency, the OR just didn't let me go after that. From from that time on, they were like, oh, we have a pharmacist. Sarah is our pharmacist. And so whether it was day or night, whether I was there or not, um, the OR is just blowing up my cell phone, my emails, um, asking for me in the pharmacy. Uh, throughout my residency and beyond until, you know, about a year out of residency, and this was back in 2013 at this point, we finally were able to work together between the stakeholders in the perioperative space and the pharmacy department leadership to get a successful FTE bid uh, for a full-time pharmacist FTE for, for periop, and that's, that's where we started in, in 2013 um, after kind of doing this peripheral legwork uh, for a year or more ahead of that. Um, since then, we've been able to grow our perioperative clinical services here at Grant to a total of three clinical pharmacist FTEs, uh, where there once was none, and then from one pharmacy technician FTE to three pharmacy technician FTEs dedicated to periop. That also got us an additional pharmacy manager um, in part along the way too, um, for just you know finally realizing how much support our perioperative patients and providers need from the pharmacy department. Well, I think that speaks to how how awesome of a role you played because to anyone who has responded to OR emergencies, I wouldn't say that I get the warm and fuzzies from them. So the fact that they loved you and welcomed you back, I think just shows um, how great you were in that role. Uh, Rachel, what about you? Yeah, so for me, um, after residency, which I shout out to UK Healthcare for an amazing residency experience, I um, wanted to come back to the Midwest space and I wanted to work at a large academic medical center. So those were my two criteria. And at the time, there was this position for the perioperative clinical pharmacy specialist uh, that was available at Barnes Hospital. It was a completely a new position posted. Um, and uh, there were really no defined roles and responsibility. No one really knew exactly what they, uh, what this person or what this physician was was going to do. But what we did know is that the clinical chief of anesthesia, who is a CT anesthesiologist by trade and also rounded in the ICU, loved his ICU pharmacist and said, "We need one of these in periop." So. Um, so I was intrigued enough by the anesthesiologist that was really set out to recruit a perioperative clinical pharmacist as well as the VP of uh, surgical services at the time and uh, took the position and really never looked back since. It's been 14 years. And um, as it relates to my responsibilities, certainly we focus, they've evolved over time. Uh, we, I focus a lot on medication safety initially. Um, as we uh, kind of came into the environment mostly on the anesthesia side of things. However, there are so many safety aspects from even the nursing, whether that's pre-post or inter-op that I also kind of um, addressed as well. And, and really, I think for me, just because I was an, a one pharmacist for a massive institution, so we had almost over 110 anesthetizing areas, that I just really took a large high-level approach 
to uh, a lot of my uh, initiatives. So just really working to optimize patient care as much as possible uh, for every patient that comes through the surgical continuum. So that could be involving, you know, protocol development, guideline development, education, med safety, uh, workflow process changes, a lot of quality improvement. And then ERAS has come along. So a lot of um, involvement in enhanced recovery after, pa- after surgery pathways, um, providing that clinical expertise to the, the people who are, which is a lot of time patient safety, quality nurses, administration, uh, staff that are trying to like put together these protocols. And, um, and yeah, just be there for every one of my physicians. So we have over 400 surgeons and 300 anesthesia clinicians that can all ask a question as well as a multitude of nurses as well that need, need, uh, usually some have some medication related question at some point. Um, and so I'm just there to, to service them as much as I can. I feel like the, when you get questions from the OR, sometimes you, you get the question and you're like, wait, 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 I need to ask four questions as to how we got here first <laughs> to kind of figure that out. Um, but I mean, talk about a huge role. You mentioned just the sheer number of procedures and patients you can influence. Yeah, that's uh, clearly making a, a really big difference there. Um, Gurung, how yeah. did you kind of get into this space? Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you, Nick, for the, again, for the opportunity. Um, it started in probably closer around 2009 or 10 um, when I was at uh, Rush University Medical Center. Um, I was in the medical ICU up until that point, and um, it wasn't quite uh, a decade yet, but, uh, you know, you kind of get to, I think everybody does in their career, where you're kind of looking a little bit more of a plateau and um, looking for something different, um, looking to make a difference or an impact in, in you know, some other way. Um, we had grown the ICU team quite a bit with uh, services covered in all the adult ICUs um, prior um, to when I arrived, it was just one. Um, so it, it was, we were able to expand, but then we also hit a little bit of a um, plateau on the growth part. And it, it was a, you know, very, very difficult getting obviously, and it still is today, I think FTE support. So the pharmacy director at the time, uh, Kevin Colgan actually um, just, randomly showed up in my office one day and said, Hey, I'd like to talk to you about an opportunity. And I said, Oh, okay. You know? Um, and he goes, I, I said, well, I don't know if I'm looking. He goes, yeah, you're looking. And so I said, okay. And you know, he said, well, what have you ever thought about the operating room? And I said, no, um, I haven't. And he said, well, um, you know, at, at the time we had, uh, several opportunities with transition to care, um, you know, infusion devices, automated dispensing cabinets. Um, there was some regarding personnel management, um, diversion, all these other things I just never even thought about or, or didn't know anything about actually. And I said, yeah, I don't know. And he goes, well, you know, you know, take uh, tomorrow afternoon and spend some time up there and take a look at it. I did. And um, similar to what uh, Sarah and Rachel mentioned, you just like, once you walk in the space, I know everybody thinks it's a, um, outer space or, you know, black hole or whatever you want to, you know, the term is, but it's really not. It's just asking questions and figuring out, gosh, you know what? You make your own epinephrine drip. We got these really cool premix ones right here down in our machine in the ICU. Why don't you use those? And we have a pump build already. It's really cool. It tells you the doses and you just have to hit the drug. We also got this thing where you can scan the drug and it was so basic 
um, where and fun. Um, but it was an easy way to build uh, some trust and relationship uh, with the anesthesia providers. And similar to what Rachel mentioned, several of them rounded in our ICUs. So it actually helped build um, bridges and relationships because then when you need to go uh, to talk to them about um, every day about drug shortages or whether it's about personnel management or um, control substances or anything, you didn't have to, um, I don't want to use the word convince, but you didn't have to do that anymore. You just had to present what you wanted to present. And they were like, okay, I hear you. I'm going to go take care of this right now. And um, it really helped kind of open the doors. And I stayed at, stayed there up until about 2019. Um, then came over here to the University of Chicago, uh, started again in the critical care and perioperative space. Um, and then again, same thing that maybe I just, it, maybe it's just me, maybe it was a midlife, early midlife crisis. And I said, well, gosh, you know, we just can't get the resources we need. Um, so there was an opportunity. Um, and now I think I'm in a better position to help um, the clinical pharmacist as a whole kind of develop more in all these different areas and really seeing different opportunities for transition to care within the perioperative space. What, what an awesome path. And I'm certainly seeing some, some similarities kind of between, between some of those three stories there. Eric, kind of close us out here with, with kind of your path and, and how you got into this world. Sure. And uh, thanks again for having us, Nick. It's interesting. This is definitely the first time I'm hearing my three colleague stories of how they got there. And uh, we can definitely say we very similarly have a, a path in terms of stumbling into the space rather unwittingly. Um, I did my PGY1 and PGY2 critical care residency at University of Kentucky and really wanted to stay on at the end of uh, residency at UK. There unfortunately weren't really many options available and I was trying to take every possible avenue uh, I could. And one day the clinical director of uh, at the time said, hey, guess what? I think we have a job for you. Um, we would like to establish clinical pharmacy services in the OR and perioperative area. And, and my response was, fantastic. What is that? Because as, you know, despite a very robust critical care residency, um, we, I had very little or no experience with intraoperative or perioperative care other than emergency response administration of factor and anticoagulation reversal scenarios. Um, so it, it, it really, my question was, you know, what will that look like? And her response really was, well, I, I think you're going to tell us what that looks like. Um, she, she threw out a lot of the buzzwords such as high acuity, high risk medication use, transitions of care. Um, and, and obviously I was very much interested in staying on at UK. And so that was definitely a, a door and a window into that space. Um, I will say that once I walked into that space, I'm very jealous of my colleagues' warm welcoming they described because uh, skepticism is, is probably a better word to describe uh, my arrival in the perioperative space, simply because many of the anesthesia providers were less versed with some of the routine questions that clinical pharmacists ask on a daily basis that I was trained to, to inquire about in terms of medication use. Um, you know, I think at UK, we have a very strong, robust relationship with providers and, and pharmacists, but that perhaps maybe hadn't made its way into the perioperative space yet. Um, so I, I get a lot of perplexed 
uh, looks from the, the providers when I would ask about what's their indication for a medication. Um, but to sort of combat that, I, I realized that getting back to the basics in terms of what I could do to help them do their job better would be the best starting point. And so, you know, I really tried to focus on areas that as a critical care pharmacist, as a clinical pharmacist, um, I likely knew more than they did or, or could assuage any issues they had about it and use that as the stepping stone to build trust, to build our relationship. Um, and, you know, fast forward, gosh, eight years now, um, I can say that um, they're a very welcoming, warm, and collegial group that uh, I very much appreciate working with. Um, but it definitely took a little bit of time to get my footing and uh, get my feel for the space. But um, like Grong and Rachel mentioned, you know, I, I do think that the perioperative space found us more than we found it. I think that's just a really good strategy in general, kind of right, building that relationship, right? You're not fighting those big battles in the beginning. You're trying to build relationships. I think that's good advice when you're starting anywhere, but especially in a new space. I, Eric, your, your, your description of, of kind of being welcomed is how I envisioned it. So I agree that I was a little um, pleasantly surprised would be the way, right? Always like being welcomed multidisciplinary-wise. Um, but I, I loved hearing everyone's stories and let's kind of do one more everyone answers question in the beginning because I think I'd love to hear the different perspectives. Um, but what would you all say are roles or responsibilities of a perioperative clinical pharmacist? So Eric, let's go reverse order. Why don't you stay here and kind of lead us off here? Sure. Um, so, you know, I, I think that is very much a evolving definition um, and ultimately, it's going to be institution-specific in terms of what we think of the major roles and responsibilities of a perioperative clinical pharmacist. Um, speaking specifically about my practice, you know, it, it very much spans the preoperative, intraoperative, and postoperative phases of care, almost summarized from a optimization, um, triage, and emergency response um, in almost those three exact same phases. Um, so I would say that those generally encompass the entire spectrum of what perioperative clinical pharmacists can do and, and have the ability to, to work towards. Um, generally, I would say that there is a, a role of a, of a clinical pharmacist in that space to advocate for evidence-based approach to perioperative pharmacotherapy. Um, and, and that very much sounds simple and basic, um, but a lot of the inherent philosophy of, of the providers in the perioperative space is that there can be more than one way to deliver anesthesia or medication therapy to intraoperative patients, um, and, and therefore they should perhaps be allowed to utilize their, their tricks and trades however they see fit. Um, and, and this is very much likely true. However, we know with the deluge of literature that's really come from this enhanced recovery pathway analysis. Uh, we've really seen that, yes, there is and are multiple ways to do things, but not necessarily do they all create the same equal outcome. So uh, I think that there is very much the opportunity for pharmacists to advocate for that um, optimal therapy, as well as advance the research and the, um, the critical evaluations through medication use evaluation, research, and quality improvement. Um, to, to really continue and 
build forward our better understanding of pharmacotherapy in that space. I think that's a really great point you made on the last piece of of research and evaluation and kind of taking that next step and really getting involved um, in some quality improvement projects and things and really kind of, um, you know, being part of that multidisciplinary team there. I, I love that. Uh, Garong, what do you think, knowing that there's obviously, I'm sure all of you will probably have some sort of overlap, but what other either things you want to emphasize from what Eric said or other, other kind of roles or responsibilities that you found in this space? Yeah. Um, you know, in thinking uh, about the transition uh, from when I entered and, and similar to what um, Eric mentioned, and, uh, you, you know, please don't, it, it was not, uh, there wasn't um, uh, red carpet and flowers <laughs> when I arrived, but um, it did take a few years, but it really transitioned from um, a kind of a dispensary, uh, pure dispensary role. I call it, I called the pharmacy at the time, not to uh, dehumanize it. And please don't, uh, the listeners don't take that the wrong way, but um, from the human, I called it the human omni-cell or human pixis because it was just here, you need this, here, you need that, here, yeah. you need this. Um, and it really transitioned to, Hey, we got these really cool machines. They're in your room. Um, they can save you a lot of time. They can save the hospital a lot of money and it's safe. And, um, it, so it went from a little bit more of kind of a dispensing role, uh, to looking at, you know, focusing time on perioperative emergencies. Um, factor stewardship was a huge piece of it because there wasn't really, uh, I, I would say there's very little or any oversight at the time and, and many places there still isn't. Um, an opportunity to look at research, transition to care. And then on the quality piece, uh, there's different metrics uh, out there specific to the perioperative area. But um, interestingly enough, they're all report card metrics that the hospital is very, very vested in. Um, but more importantly, um, very, very high levels of the hospital are very vested in and they take note of every quarter. And whether it's a patient safety index indicator of um, VTE or reintubation rate or acute kidney injury after um, surgery uh, or skin and soft tissue infection or your SSI rate, um, the list goes on. And I think, you know, one of the really neat opportunities is looking at experiential education. I think Eric mentioned it. Um, and I think uh, Sarah got started into this is that there in many places um, isn't a path for even a PGY-1, let alone a PGY-2 to gain the insight. So then when they see these job postings, and there's a couple out right now, I think there's one at University of Florida um, that I saw recently come up, but in more and more every year in different places all over the country. But that's where the job market is moving to. And the perioperative space, believe it or not, listeners, there there's a lot of money in surgery, and there's a lot of reimbursement in surgery, even though it's changed there's still a lot of money there. And if there's a hospital doing 100, 200 cases a day, whatever it is, um, whether it's procedural and or true surgical, there's there's some reimbursement there, which means there are some FTE dollars there. So I, I think it's a pretty neat opportunity to look at um, in terms of experiential education. You know, we haven't even touched on students yet, um, but I think even for PGY1s or PGY2s, if it's possible, I think it's a great path. And, I've highlighted on a previous episode the 
the idea of soft dollar savings that's not creating FTEs like it was in the past. And so getting at things like core measures, improving outcomes, like you mentioned in the surgical space, right? Those are ways to, to be able to justify FTEs or get positioned. So I think that's a, an awesome point to highlight there of, of the opportunities that, that exist in a lot of places still. Um, Rachel, what's your perspective? Well, my perspective, Nick, is that really, I would say each one of us on the call have different roles and responsibilities within the space because the, the entire surgical continuum is massive and it is too much for one person or even a small group of people to really even effectively um, intervene on in all the places in which there are opportunities and needs for perioperative pharmacists to uh, to be involved and integrated in the team. Um, so. So, I mean, I believe, you know, from, from what Eric said and then Gurong, I've just really, I, my role and responsibility, I really had utilized um, data to help me drive a lot uh, and inform a lot of my decisions that I made for the perioperative space. Um, again, so we have, we, when I start here, we have four OR pharmacy satellites already at baseline. Uh, we have two ambulatory surgery centers that are um, separate from our institution. And then our institution is massive that covers across several blocks. So I couldn't really figure out how to really triage, like which patient profile do I actually look at um, and how long do I spend on just a couple patients or do I try to, and I can allude to this a little bit earlier, or do I just look at the whole overarching workflow, the systems design of the perioperative space, of medications used within the perioperative space, and, um, and really get uh, savvy with data in trying to help inform how I make my suggestions or who I contact whenever there's a drug shortage related to this, or if there's a formulary request, um, who, um, you know, just collaborating with those clinicians, trying to figure out the best usage parameters to put around that. How do we enforce those within the perioperative space? Um, and then the, the patient safety and quality indicators, as Gurong mentioned, you know, how do we prove that we are, you know, providing the optimal care? How are we proving that we are putting or putting, uh, excuse me, administering antibiotics prior to the surgical incision time? So people are data hungry and they want to know how we're performing. And so I think I've also, my role has really evolved a lot around being involved in data quality and uh, improvement performance, and that ties in equally well with uh, the Enhanced Recovery After Surgery Initiative. What an awesome example of using technology, right, to help increase the what you can do, right? And kind of you mentioned, right, am I going to look at a couple patients or am I going to see, you know, what med- what high cost medications have we used? And kind of thinking of it from that perspective is a, is a really unique way because I think all of us on the day-to-day clinical classic bedside, right? That's that's not necessarily the way that we think about, you know, pre-rounding. So you kind of have to think outside of the box and that's a that's a really good example of that. Um all right, Sarah, round us out. What did we miss anything? Is there anything you wanted to emphasize? Obviously, like Rachel said, we could probably spend two hours talking about all the different roles and responsibilities, but is there anything else you think we want to highlight? Sure. I'd like to highlight, you know, our main OR position was really built around antibiotic optimization for the periop population. In previous state before we had this role, it was really, you know, if an antibiotic order for a periop patient hit the queue, we verified it. And I didn't feel like periop patients should be any different in terms of getting that comprehensive review and optimization for 
really important medication therapies than, you know, what, from what we provide anywhere else in the hospital. And so our physician prospectively reviews and optimizes every single pre-op antibiotic for every patient that comes through our surgery centers. And we, we do this through an advanced prep process where we can kind of pre-review orders for the next business day of surgery. And we can do things like delabel penicillin allergies, optimize increased use of first-line antibiotics, make sure appropriate coverage, not only for the procedure, but for any patient-specific factors. And when I started to kind of bring it home with, with the metrics conversation, that was in the, the years of, of SCIP or the Surgical Care Improvement Project for those who may remember having SCIP misses at their hospitals. Yes, and there, yes. there was a lot of reimbursement dollars on the line and, be, and being lost. And so that, that was a need that I was, it instantly keyed in on as, you know, a, a place where we can help. And so antibiotic optimization is something that we've taken ownership of and had a, a, a strong impact on institutional and patient metrics in terms of the skip compliance at the time, but also surgical site infection rates, all of which are compensable metrics through, through CMS reimbursement programs um, in some fashion and in different fashions, evolving fashions to this day. Um, so that's a really great place to start that I would offer the audience as a, a, a good role for perioperative clinical pharmacists. You know, additionally, any other high-risk therapies, for example, we make a, a, a stop every day in the open heart rooms to double check the anesthesia, vasoactive medication drips um, for all of our open heart patients. Because, you know, there's often this, this kind of big tree of, of really high-risk uh, pressors and inotropes and, and medications that are kind of teed up in advance uh, for maybe a big cabbage type of case. And we found that, you know, by just kind of being in there and being a safety double check at the patient level for those, we've, we've been able to build relationships and improve safety, um, being able to mitigate things like, you know, if the norepi got programmed on the epi channel or if a previous patient's weight was still in the pump and, you know, it's a weight-based drip. So there's a 30 kilo difference there and that could have, you know, been very dangerous when we're coming off, off pump and starting these agents. So um, honing in on high-risk medications, you know, basically just I want to emphasize to the audience that, you know, getting in there and not being afraid of the black hole or, you know, anything that you want to call it and, and doing pharmacist things. I think bringing the, the ED pharmacist, critical care, internal medicine, pharmacist mindset and targets is, is really all I've done throughout, throughout my career, just bringing all of what we do to periop. And that might look different, but um, we can adapt to that and have, have a tremendous impact. What a fantastic way. That was going to be the point that I made as well was that it really feels like you're taking pieces from all different types of specialties, right? You're kind of taking pieces from the ID specialty, from the critical care, from ED, internal medicine, and kind of using them all. So I think that's a, a really cool way to think of things, especially for those, right? I consider myself a jack of all trades, master of none. And that's right. Using all the different pieces that's kind of in the same realm. So I think that's really cool. So that was a really uh, good overview and kind of general discussion. Um, so let's go ahead and get into cardiac arrest, where uh, Sarah and Garong uh, really give us a lot of pearls and discussion to the management in this unique space. Leading us off with cardiac arrest, and Sarah, I want to kind of start off with, for those who have never experienced a medical emergency like a cardiac arrest in the OR, how does, like... Explain to us how this might differ from a classic inpatient cardiac arrest or even like an ED cardiac arrest. How is it? How is that different? This is a great question, Nick. And uh, the, the bottom line here is everything is different. Everything is different about an intraoperative cardiac arrest as compared to an in-hospital cardiac arrest or an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. 
literally everything is different. And we as pharmacists need to be prepared for that. And so in, in the paper, we spend a great deal of time setting the scene and getting into these details. I highly encourage the listeners to check out table one to really see our side-by-side comparison of, you know, maybe what you're used to about this aspect of emergency response and then what the periop realm is going to kind of turn that on its head and what you, what you need to expect. So uh, first of all, you know, whether you're working in the ED or in the hospital, if you are responding to a cardiac arrest, yeah, it might be chaotic, but by and large, you know kind of what to expect in the sense that everybody's playing by the same playbook. We have ACLS, there should be, you know, pulse checks every two minutes, somebody's probably doing chest compressions, we're getting an AED on them, we're thinking about H's and T's, there should be a co-leader, you know, everybody's playing to the same script. Um, when you respond to a cardiac arrest or another medical emergency in the OR, there may not be any playbook, or there might be seven playbooks, um, or we might not even be all the way to the playbook yet, but maybe thinking about the playbook. And the process is fundamentally different in, in important ways. There, there are some important reasons for this, but the flip side of that, and we speak a lot to this as well, unfortunately, sometimes this means that medical emergencies are just inherently more chaotic and maybe in, in less productive ways than they, they need to be because of this, this dynamic. So to point to some very specific differences, the, the recognition of the event is, is really different. So when you're in the OR, you have a dedicated anesthesiologist and or nurse anesthetist who is just a, a trained provider charged with keeping you alive uh, and asleep or comfortable while the surgery is going on. And that is somebody who has, you know, extensive familiarity with the patient. They know exactly what happened to the patient leading up to the event. They probably have an idea of what's causing the event. There's, you know, we're, we're not starting from scratch, you know, so ACLS is all about kind of this rhythm based uh, kind of expedited way of making an assessment and trying to figure out what the cause is or expediting early therapies that could improve survival. Uh, the, the etiologies and the, you know, kind of framework for making those assessments are, are just fundamentally different when you have a, a set of providers already involved in the patient's care and already really know what's going on. You can kind of um, think about things differently. The etiologies are also very different. So commonly, you know, cardiac etiologies are going to predominate in a hospital, even out of hospital cardiac arrest. We're used to seeing a lot of PEA or ventricular arrhythmias. In the intraoperative setting, oftentimes there's uh, our primary respiratory component. The arrhythmias, uh, like bradyarrhythmias, are going to be way more common. And then you have these kind of very rare and specific toxicities or syndromes or medication-related things um, like malignant hypothermia or LAST that we'll, we'll touch on later in the podcast that, you know, really are unlikely to come up anywhere else. So um, additionally, the medications, the way that they're used and who gives them and the personnel involved in the events are, are very different. So when we're on the floors or in the ER, we're used to, you know, maybe a physician or a mid-level um, advanced practice provider leading the code and nurses at the bedside administering the medications. And an anesthesiologist or nurse anesthetist is going to be probably the ordering provider and the administering provider on the medication. So we're not preparing medications and communicating things to a nurse. We're working through an anesthesiologist who has a lot of medication knowledge, and especially the medications that, that, that they use in the OR which to be honest, the average pharmacist may or may not be more familiar with, mm-hmm. with those medications as, as they are. So it's a very different team. 
depending on the cause of the event, it might be more surgical or more medical related. So you have this kind of different set of providers who are operating or maybe the operation is the cause of the event or maybe the operation is the cure for the event. Um, there's just this whole complex orchestra in there with very different team-based roles than what we're used to walking into when you respond to a code blue or not a hospital arrest and your ED are on the floor. So Sarah, you mentioned the, the, the different causes and the etiology is so different. So, um, so do you think of H's and T's like with cardiac arrest or is it, are you in, like you said, different playbooks, are you thinking of something completely different and it's all depending on the patient and what's going on with them? So I'm, I'm never going to say that thinking about H's and T's are a bad idea per se, but I do not think that is the most useful framework for an intraoperative cardiac arrest. Um, ACLS in general is probably not the most useful tool in this situation um, based on these different etiologies and the different providers and situations involved. So there are, though, some other useful resources that we can use. So a lot of the references that we have summarized in our paper will we'll point you to those. So there are kind of a, an anesthesia-specific version of ACLS is kind of what they're called, some publications out there. There are also uh, two big crisis, intraoperative crisis checklists that are available. One is created by Harvard um, with Ariadne Labs in collaboration, and one is created by Stanford. And both of these are free, open access, downloadable manuals that are customized to emergency events that occur in the perioperative space. And these are, you know, kind of tabular, um, really focused checklists for what to think about unique to these situations. And so those are some useful tools that I would offer. There are some other specific guidelines for different situations, such as MH, LAST. There are also specific guidelines in patients who are post-sternotomy, so are post-open heart patients. If they start to crump and have a cardiac arrest, they actually have their own, basically, version of ACLS that we really want to consider in those patients. So there are some playbooks out there, quote unquote, and I think that whoever is responding, however, you know, if you are a pharmacist and your role at some point could include responding to a medical emergency in the OR, this is really something important to think about, um, whether or not you have a dedicated perioperative clinical pharmacist or not, if you're the IC pharmacist who would respond or, you know, some other pharmacist who would respond, you know, really thinking through this, I think is important. And we offer a lot of resources and succinct recommendations for how to navigate these, but just knowing that they are very different and our framework, our response needs to adapt to that to be effective. So Garang Sarah did a, a good job of just showing us how different the whole world is in the OR when a cardiac arrest is happening. How, so specifically she mentioned it, it goes through, it's a completely different bedside flow and everything. So how do your interventions differ? And then honestly, like, how are you even able to gather information in what sometimes is just pure chaos? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great, um, it's a very, some very good points. And I think um, she highlighted it. It's, you transition very quickly from, I went to this uh, code the other day in the ICU. Uh, we went through the H's and T's. Um, this was the rhythm. This is the algorithm um, to a place where uh, I actually think many times 
there's actually better crowd control because not many people actually want to go in um, or can get in rather uh, to help support them. But I think simulation training, um, I actually call it, whether right, wrong, or indifferent, just my opinion, but I usually call it organized chaos because you can go in, there's a lot of things happening, a lot of people doing different things, but it is organized, um, you know, as long as they're following what they're supposed to be doing. But, you know, looking at etiologies, thinking about, and I know we're going to touch on a couple of them, but rare things that would happen outside of those doors, OR doors. So whether it's malignant hyperthermia, last, anaphylaxis, um, another big one I know, um, adrenal suppression uh, from somebody maybe that's hypo uh, pituitaryism. So things that may have not been treated or maybe overlooked um, or treated but need to be um, kind of re, uh, readdressed with medication therapy. The other one I'll say is more operationally related, believe it or not. Um, you kind of think of it as like uh, being the investigator. So it's checking infusion bags, um, what's hanging, what's uh, how are they set up on the infusion devices? Um, what syringes were drawn up and how are they labeled? Because syringe swaps occur. Um, it does just double checking where everything's going because oftentimes you can find, um, un- you know, unfortunately things that are mismatched. And so those are, um, you know, I- I'd say there's very easily, they're very easily identified um, and you can address them very quickly and you didn't give a single drug. So there are ways to um, actually support them during a cardiovascular collapse and really kind of make an impact. You just got to think out, think about them. I think also when I, you know, first called to a room, I, it, it obviously helps because now I'm, you know, over 10 years into this place, I know the people, I know the landscape, but some things are definitely easier at this point. But especially when I was starting out, I think it really helps to, First of all, make sure you know which door to go into. Um, ORs are kind of, you know, a, a positive pressure environment, much like our IV clean rooms, and you can really compromise sterility if you just go barreling in there. And that's a big reason why code blues are not usually called to ORs. You know, it's, if, if they're calling a code blue to the OR, you either maybe have a unique process or it's something that is uh, really catastrophic at that point because normally uh, surgical anesthesia providers will do everything they can to avoid calling the code blue to the OR. They just, they don't want the code team and all the residents, all these people just barreling into the OR and technique and, and, and chaos, you know, being, being compromised further. So know which door to go into. If you go in the right door, there's usually a nurse there called the circulator nurse or similar who is kind of responsible for documenting what the surgical team is doing or uh, maybe going in and out to retrieve additional supplies for the field or making additional calls when additional personnel are needed. So you can kind of go in the right door and stop and go and be like, Hey, what's going on? Or, you know, try to get the backstory from that circulator nurse. Cause that's somebody who is not scrubbed in whose job is to kind of be that traffic control in some respects. And then I tend to, you know, kind of sneak around to the anesthesia side of the room uh, once I can observe and get the information I can, you know, from from that nurse and uh, really hone in on what the anesthesia providers are are passing and uh, just try to, you know, gently, appropriately, observantly, but um, assertively where needed, insert myself much the way that we have done in the emergency department. There was a time that pharmacists were a completely foreign entity in the emergency department. And that has very much evolved, but 
for those of us who are maybe involved in the donnings of that type of service at our institutions, you know, it's, it's the same type of thing. It just looks a little bit different, but that's what I would offer as well. So closing out, and I'd, I'd, I'd kind of be curious, both of your opinions, um, Grung, let's start with you. You know, both of you have mentioned, right, um, asserting yourself, not being scared in that space and things. What kind of, based on your experience, what advice would you give um, if you felt like you were going to try to push back on a recommend, like if someone asked you for something that you didn't necessarily think was indicated or agreed with? Um, and I ask that because... Sometimes those interactions don't always go um, as you'd want. So I didn't know, based on your experience, if you had any um, tips or tricks from the audience, knowing, obviously, that it's going to vary greatly based on your specific providers and all those things. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great point. I think um, one of the highlights, and I think uh, Sarah and I both touched on this, is that there are many things going on and likely many people um, vocalizing different things um, similar to what is probably seen outside the OR, but um, maybe at different magnitudes and tones. And so just reminding everyone what you're, what is being asked, repeating it. Um, it's some of the basic functions. It seems silly, honestly, sometimes, but it's a necessary basic function of, okay, you're asking me for this then um, I'm assuming it's because we need it for, we, you're asking me for X because I, I believe you need it for Y. That's what you need. And believe it or not, it's um, just the, um, you know, replying and, you know, letting them know that, yeah, you heard them. Sometimes, believe it or not, they'll be like, oh, wait, no, that's not what I meant. Um, I, I need drug Z. That, that's not what I meant at all. And that can happen a lot, of course, outside the operating room. But because of everything going on, um, I think that's, it's so critical because there are many people doing many different tasks. The other piece of it is, um, if there's an, if there is an established, uh, relationship or bond with the, the providers in, in any manner, you're more likely going to be able to have them listen to what you have to say. Um, and, and so I think it's always important to voice a concern. Um, sure. If I think it's very going to be detrimental to patient safety, yeah, you know, likely regardless of the circumstances, you should speak up regardless of your role or how many years you've been there, um, or who you know or don't know. But I think most of the time, um, framing it as suggestions are, um, likely more received and better received than, no, I think we should do this because of X, Y, Z. Those usually don't go very well in codes from what I've seen. I don't, it doesn't matter how many years you've been a pharmacist. Um, and I just think it's a better, it's just a different approach, but I think it, it works a lot better. I agree with the, the restatement, closed loop communication, obviously still incredibly important in any emergency situation. I tend to take a similar approach or I'll say something to the effect of, if they ask for X, I'll say I have Y available. Love that. And kind of give that polite, redirection that's very concise or they'll ask for x and i'll be like the patient does have y you know so being prepared to have a, a a polite response uh if nothing else confirming the intention and making sure there's nothing that makes that a catastrophically bad idea or just getting that out on the table if there is i think that the other big thing here i want to to offer as a take-home point is the importance of developing 
or working towards at least a dedicated response team for intraoperative emergencies. This is this is an ongoing gap, I think, in, in clinical practice in general. It's something we spend a lot of time in in the paper, just calling out that we have examples in the practice literature to, to draw from. Not a ton, but they're, they're emerging. And where we have institutions that have oftentimes been born out of a, a very bad event that went very poorly, you know, dur- during, a, during a case, um, and developed an emergency response team for intraoperative specific purposes, you, you can then rehearse that. You can get to simulations. You can do that the same way that you have your educators facilitate code blue drills on different nursing units that may not experience them very frequently. And that also helps with just more face time with the providers and another opportunity to build those relationships so that when you show up on the scene in an emergency, they're like, oh, that's wrong. Hey, this is what's going on. This is what I need. And you can kind of get to a place where you can be really helpful really quickly. Um, so I never hesitate to document when things go very poorly and to continue to push the opportunity that I, I think many institutions can relate to and having just a better, more established, cohesive, official emergency response that is specific for intraoperative areas. Boy, I hope everyone was listening. That's fantastic advice for, for, all, for, for all emergencies for communication-wise. In closing this out... Uh, Rachel and Eric are going to have a discussion about the use of Sugamidex. Talking about Sugamidex, and this could be an episode all in and of itself, but uh, Rachel, give the audience a, a brief background into you know, what this drug is, and specifically, based on its mechanism, what's the benefit that it could provide? Why, why is um, this becoming a, a drug used more and more in the OR, periop space, etc.? Yeah, so Sugaminex is a selective neuromuscular uh, blocker relaxing uh, agent. So it's a reversal agent for rocuronium and vecuronium specifically. Rocuronium, it does have a higher affinity for uh, as compared to vecuronium. But what it can do is it can reverse nearly all, dev- uh, all depth of neuromuscular blockade in really a matter of minutes, um, as long as it's dosed appropriately. Um, and that differs from the um, historical standard, which is basically neostigmine in most institutions, um, which reverses neuromuscular blockade through a competitive mechanism. Um, though with that competitive mechanism, there's a lot of things to um, interplay, such as the quantity of neuromuscular blockers still within the neuromuscular junction, um, being one of the most um, predominant ones, and the speed by which it can actually reverse neuromuscular blockade. So um, all of those really um, cause the, uh, I guess, the efficacy of neosigmine to be a little bit more, could be more delayed. And certainly only it really restricts reversal to really those patients who have minimal or shallow depth of blockade when you are at the point of um, waking the patient up and actually emergence from, from the um, neuromuscular blockade at the end of the case. Um, Sugamidex is, as I mentioned, can reverse effectively uh, all depths of blockade. Um, it does so by binding the neuromuscular blocking agent, the rocker vec, and essentially eliminates it, prevents it from um, um, going back to the neuromuscular junction for the most part. It is nearly irreversible, um, but 
but with that said, it is just more effective. With pharmacy school, we definitely always like those cleaner drugs, the drugs with less adverse effects, the drugs that are the most effective. So it is the most effective neuromuscular blocking reversal agent that we have on the market at this time. However, it is a branded drug and it has, um, it has uh, the price tag that kind of goes along with it. And then there is also um, what does the by reversing, having a cleaner reversal, what does it actually do to patient outcomes? And so I think that, you know, there are, there's some data out there that shows that there could be a reduction in postoperative pulmonary events. This is related to, you know, the initial um, muscles that get paralyzed uh, by neuromuscular blockers would be pretty much our airway muscles. Um, and also they are the most, because they're the most sensitive to neuromuscular blockade. Um, they're also the last to recover. So if you do not have a complete full recovery of all of your neuromuscular of all your neuromuscular status, so that is defined as a train of four ratio zero of greater than zero point nine via quantitative monitoring, um, those muscles are thought not to be recovered enough to perhaps prevent aspiration events or different types of um, muscle depression and um, respiratory depression type things, um, events, complications within uh, the PACU or immediately post-op. So in theory, many of us who are healthy undergoing surgery perhaps could bounce back from those little micro insults um, very effectively. But then the question is, um, how does your 92-year-old grandma bounce back from perhaps being extubated too soon before they're really adequately able to protect their airway? And would that ultimately develop could they develop a pneumonia and then that ultimately uh, throw them off to a untoward trajectory post-op. So I think a lot of the, um, the advantages um, of Sugamidex over neostigmine um, are not like solid, but they have a lot of grounded theory behind them. There is some uh, real-world data that does support, but at the same time, if utilized appropriately, neostigmine can be in a very effective reversal agent too. We also just have to make sure our clinicians are monitoring appropriately, so doing the appropriate neuromuscular monitoring, um, specifically as it relates to quantitative monitoring, which a lot of institutions don't have those devices yet. Um, and then those that do have the devices, they're sometimes are having issues with how user-friendly they are and how reliable they are and even how much um, insight has been put into making sure everyone's competent in using those devices. So there's a lot to go to. It's a lot to unpack. And as you mentioned, Nick, we could have a whole session on Sugamidex. And is it, is it uh, you know, really the way to go? But we now have the ASA 2023 guidelines that certainly are um, – I don't really want to say tie in our hands, but certainly have promoted the use of Sugamidex in nearly every depth of blockade except for um, uh, minimal blockade. And um, and so I just keep trying to highlight that we also have to make sure that while we have the drugs available, we also have to make sure that we're documenting our neuromuscular, monitoring our uh, neuromuscular status and documenting that in the chart. Now, Eric, knowing that this is probably the most loaded question of the whole episode, 
What would you say are examples of emergency scenarios when Sugamidex should be given? And all of you have done a good job emphasizing the lack of literature and high-quality data in this space. Just let us know in these scenarios if there's anything to guide us, kind of knowing that mm, it's probably not. But I'll be, I'll be curious what your thoughts are. Sure. Uh, so I guess I'll start off first with the FDA-indicated scenario of uh, emergent to gamut excuse, and, and that would be in the scenario described as cannot intubate, cannot ventilate. Um, in the setting of rapid sequence intubation, in essence, you've paralyzed the patient but are unable to either place a no-tracheal tube, nor are you able to successfully oxygenate or ventilate the patient. So in essence, the patient is paralyzed, um, and you do not have access to their airway. Um, and there are very robust and frequently updated guidelines in terms of emergent airways and critical airway pathways, um, which uh, key anesthesiologists and, and emergency medicine providers for triaging these, this type of event. But Sugamidex at a dose of 16 mg per kg is promoted and FDA approved for the treatment of cannot intubate, cannot ventilate in the setting of recent neuromuscular blocking agent administration. There are definitely a lot of challenges associated with that. Um, first being is that the, the decision to go down the let's procure uh, 16 milligram per kilogram of Sugamidex um, is a decision that takes you away from, as an advanced provider, utilizing other pathways within the uh, emergent airway path. So not doing cricothyrotomy, not doing transtracheal gent ventilation or other ventilation strategies that might temporize the patient. So in a, in a lot of ways, you've, you've sold yourself down a single pathway to resolving this emergency scenario. Second, it's not going to salvage all patients. And then an important consideration is also many of these patients that have received uh, neuromuscular blocking agents as part of rapid sequence intubation, they've also been administered sedatives or anxiolytics. And so removing that paralytic does not automatically uh, resolve their ability to oxygenate or, or ventilate um, if, they're, if they've gotten a uh, RSI dose of propofol or atomidate. So uh, it, it is one avenue, but um, in my discussions with plenty of anesthesiologists and as our department fully advocates, in many ways, Sugamidex or cannot intubate, cannot ventilate is, is sort of a false parachute um, and a false security blanket that uh, many providers that actively uh, practice and advise young residents to not consider or perhaps avoid. Um, outside of that FDA approved indication, um, you know, we have seen some emerging literature um, in the forms of both case reports and retrospective uh, series or case studies or retrospective studies um, evaluating the use of Sugamidex in either the emergency department or in the ICU to, um, in essence, expedite neurologic assessment um, in potentially catastrophic brain injury for patients that have received uh, rapid sequence intubation, including a neuromuscular blocking agent. So this may be encountered in the emergency department where a trauma patient comes in and has what's believed to be a significant head injury, um, 
and neurosurgery would like to perform a neurologic assessment, obtain a Glasgow coma score scale on them um, to either guide uh, emergent interventions um, or uh, family discussions um, in, in terms of additional steps. And they are prohibited from doing so by the patient being paralyzed because EMS intubated the patient and gave them um, a big old whopping RSI dose of neuromuscular blocking agent. Um, and, and so we're seeing studies arise in, in terms of utilizing Stugamidex in that setting to help facilitate quicker, um, uh, more expedited neurologic assessment of those patients. Um, and many of the reports have, have demonstrated um, a significant positive benefit with this in terms of time to neurologic assessment, changes in GCS from, from that 3T uh, initial status. Um, but in, there's a lot more important considerations for the use of Sugamidex in, in those um, uh, critical neurocritical care patients. Um, while many side effects associated with Sugamidex are rare, um, there are cited instances of bradycardia, hypotension, and arrhythmias, all of which may have much more profound effects on uh, a neurocritically ill patient than someone who uh, perhaps isn't in that state and, and receiving Sugamidex. Uh, additionally, you know, then you sort of have to plan for what to do next after you've reversed the paralytic for the patient. And, and if they do have a significant brain injury that would be perhaps benefited by uh, paralysis, um, perhaps you've tied your hands on that um, and, and have limited additional options or need to reach for something like cystatricurium to re-paralyze the patient. Uh, so I would say cautiously that there is data and from a dosing standpoint, many of those uh, recommendations range from either low dose weight-based of 0.5 to 2 mg per kg or flat-based dosing of 200 milligrams. Um, in essence, the goal really is to unveil some of the paralysis to enable um, a change in a, in a GCF evaluation and not necessarily fully expedite and, and allow the extubation uh, and avoiding the post-extubation complications, as, as Rachel mentioned. So there, there certainly is considerations, but uh, additional studies more uh, would, would benefit um, evidence in this area without a doubt. The last scenario that uh, we can talk about that is also recently emerging is the utilization for Stugamidex in the setting of suspected anaphylaxis as a result of rock uronia. Uh, so in the perioperative space, I feel like antibiotics get a bad rap in terms of always being the source of allergic reactions, anaphylaxis, it's, you know, it's always the antibiotics and therefore it's always the pharmacy's fault uh, <laughs> for helping select the antibiotic that resulted in the anaphylactic event. Um, studies, however, show that the most common precipitating uh, agents for allergic reactions in the perioperative space are actually non-depolarizing aminosteroid neuromuscular blocking agents such as rocuronium and becuronium. Um, so one potential solution for a suspected rocuronium-induced anaphylaxis would be the administration of Stugamidex. Um, and mechanistically, that would fully bind up the rocuronium and remove its ability to 
precipitate or propagate additional uh, allergic reactions. Data is very much based only on case reports and case series at this time. Um, and in a lot of ways, we are challenged in taking that pathway simply from the fact that so many different medications are likely to be co-administered at the time that those neuromuscular blocking agents are administered. So, you know, you look at other high likely offending agents, antibiotics, local anesthetics, uh, uh, um, opioid analgesics, all medications that in their own right could potentially precipitate a severe allergic reaction. Um, and, and so how do we possibly or definitively know that the allergic reaction was caused by that rocuronium or vecuronium agent? Um, so in, in a lot of ways, I, I think that the most appropriate pathway or, or consideration in this situation would be the utilization of Stugamidex perhaps as an adjuvant to the rest of a um, more evidence-based approach to anaphylaxis, including steroids, H2 blockers, um, epinephrine, um, and sort of adding the Sugamidex if it was appropriate and worthy of consideration. What a, what a great review on topics that have such little data, right? But I love the, um, not only giving some of the evidence, right, but clinical considerations, right? It's, Making sure you have a plan for what happens after you give the Sigamidex, I think, is so important for a lot of the things you talked about. So um, really good highlights there. And yeah, you, uh, one of your colleagues, um, right, that's here right now, uh, Sarah Hyland, right, she, she kind of published a little retrospective study that gave some guidance on it. And like you, like you had mentioned, the 200 milligrams was the dose used there. So uh, a great review. A grong, Rachel, Eric, Sarah, um, so appreciative of uh, your time and expertise. Uh, what an awesome insight into into kind of the uniqueness and differences. Um, part one was awesome. Everyone stay tuned for part two. Um, listeners, remember, uh, vote for not only the April Literature Review Series articles, vote for those pharmacists featured section, but also Pharmacy to Dose Awards. So be thinking live June 1st. Uh, pharmacy to dose on Twitter, Instagram, via email, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. Uh, the reference list for some of the articles and guidelines discussed in this episode and more is featured in the podcast episode description, as well as pharmacy to dose.com, the website. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com apps.